saying what I think you're saying. Shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. Listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. Francesco. Charlie. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser known films that we think deserve greater attention. If you haven't guessed it already, our film of this episode is Call Me By Your Name, made in 2017 by Luca Guadagnino. Oh, that was wonderful pronunciation. Just for context, I asked Francesco to send me an audio file of how to pronounce Guadagnino. <laughs> Thank you for that. We're joined today by a wonderful guest and a dear friend, Pete Restry. Yeah, so why don't you tell um, our listener what you do and... Hi, listener. I'm Pete. Uh, and I work in music, and also for the NHS. Two equally valid institutions <laughs> that have both suffered from COVID, but in very different ways. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> so why don't we jump right into talking about Call Me By Your Name. Just quick roundup, like, dislike, love, hate. This is the film that most of my friends have had sex to. Cool. I haven't asked my friends what films they have sex to. <laughs> um, I really like the film. Maybe not as much as when I did when I first saw it when it came out. I really like the film, but I have a lot of questions and I don't think they can be answered. <laughs> um, so, from what I understand, Pete, you have a long relationship with this film. I think I've seen it. 30 times? Jesus, 30 times. I don't yeah. think I've seen any film 30 times. I've rewatched films that I like a lot. Like I I don't know, I don't know why this film kind of just captured something nostalgia, like summer love. You know, this this film was just such a vehicle for people to lose themselves in masturbatory fantasies about Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> and whether you want to be in him or whether you just want to be him or look at him, this film is quite mesmerizing because <laughs> you get to see Timmy wank into a peach. We are not going to be able to talk about Call Me By Your Name without talking about in-plot masturbation. Yep. So this is very much our wanking episode. Congratulations, viewers, you picked a good one. Peep, since you're the expert on coming into a peach, maybe <laughs> uh, you should tell us the synopsis of the film. I've already told you it. Boy wanks in peach, everyone That's screams. not the whole film. <laughs> There's more to it than that. Okay, uh... I'm getting very frustrated. <laughs> just, just, just for context, the actual fun bit of trivia about the peach <laughs> is that it's in the book, but Guadagnino. Uh, I'm just going to keep pronouncing it because yeah, I'm having no, fun. Good. Good. I'm very, I'm just pleased with myself. Yeah. Um, and Chalamet both wanted to cut it out because they didn't think it could be done, so they separately tested it to see if you could successfully. So oh, yeah, Luca Guadagnino went home, wanked himself silly into a piece of fruit, and then decided. This has got to go in my film. Oh, he said, it works. <laughs> we can put it in the movie. It's realistic. Uh, it's a really good film. Uh, it's set in the 80s. It's this very wealthy family. And the father's like an academic. They sort of spend their days like lazing around this gorgeous house. And then a gorgeous young man arrives. He's like this, you know, 
handsome PhD student who, like, they invite PhD students to their house every summer. As, as, re- as research assistants. Well, I don't know. Not, or, or not, as... not, not, just, not just to bang their son. Uh, but yeah, uh, basically, this young, handsome man called Oliver arrives and the son of the two academics becomes absolutely besotted with this guy and they end up having a a relationship towards the end of the summer. Uh, It's really brief, it's very passionate. The question I really was wondering while watching it, as I hadn't seen the film until we started prepping for this. I knew that Francesca wanted to do this and I understood why and it was a film that I'd always meant to see, just never got around to. Does the film suffer from a post-2021 Army Hammer? So first of all, I think it suffers from a 2017 Army Hammer playing a 24-year-old character and looking about 35, which a lot of queer activists saw as sort of embodying the stereotype that, oh yeah, queer relationships are inherently pedophilic by when they cast 12-year-old looking Timothy Chalamet next to 40-year-old looking <laughs> Army Hammer. Just for, but, just for context, Army Hammer is, at the time of filming, I believe was 31 and <clears throat> Timothy Chalamet was 21. Yeah, the, the two actors were adult, they were of age, but they look very, very far apart from yeah. each other. One looks uh, younger than he is and the other looks old. How did one of my friends describe it? He was like, this film has a daddy issue. Hey, know? I would just say, it does not have a daddy issue, it's got a great daddy and that daddy is played by Michael Stuhlberg. <laughs> I feel like what this film suffers from the most is just an overwhelming sense of whiteness. I think the film does something very noble. It wants to present a queer story with no potentially triggering scenes of aggressive homophobia without a single coming out moment. Or I without... it, it's very much not a coming out movie. Exactly, it's very natural and it's very organic. And it wants the family of the young character to be supportive. And there's this wonderful monologue near the end where the dad, you know, offers his unconditional support and uh, empathy and care for his son. And that, there's an element of that that it's autobiographic. The author of the book wrote about himself. But there's also an element of that that in order for that to happen in the 80s you by necessity have to have this very privileged white wealthy bubble where everyone is super educated super understanding and you know it serves to achieve the purpose that the film sets for itself in presenting this type of relationship but it also by necessity becomes very upper class yeah i I think i would agree with that completely um the way I've heard the film being described is queer wish fulfillment. Like the conversation that he has with his dad is the conversation we all wished we'd had with our dads when we came out, where the dad just goes, it's all right, son. Like, I love you. You're amazing. And obviously, like, you know, if you're thinking about, quote unquote, mainstream queer cinema, it always seemed out of necessity to have to deal with dead Queer people, like, you know, people who killed themselves out of shame for being queer or people who were killed by other people for being queer. People whose queerness is intrinsically linked to... Violence. Exactly. Violence against them. And Or, or to take another approach, the idea that being uh, queer made you somehow, you know, like, like there were lots of queer killers. Just to bring it back to this, the it's set in the in 83 the book is set in 87 right uh, there was a conscious decision we can get into uh, why that was uh, later but there was a scene shot where they do discuss right the uh, the epidemic right and ultimately they cut that out of the film and as much as you know it was such a part of queer life in the 80s and also just life in the 80s it wasn't just Queer people suffering and dying in it was part of the national consciousness it like people yeah. everyone was talking about it like 
But does it fit in this film? It is is my question. Well, as a wish fulfillment. Well, no, because it's queer wish fulfillment. Yeah. This, well, if, this if is, you view it in that this, lens, this is the film you you know you watch like to forget about. Like how painful, you know, your experience of growing up hiding a sexuality Cause, cause is. There, or... there is conflict and there is trauma in this film on the part of Elio, but I think the Elio. Elio I'm sorry, <laughs> he's he's Jewish. I get to pronounce it however I want. <laughs> this is like, my cut blanche. That's not how language works. <laughs> <laughs> but the traumas, quote unquote, that he suffers, none of them are specifically could only happen to a queer person. They are traumas of heartbreak. They are traumas um... of identity. And it's related to, but these are things that we all go go through as, it's a coming of age story about someone that happens to have their first love be another man. When I made the joke uh, before, you know, saying this is a film that all my friends have had sex to, this isn't, you know, like all my gay friends or my, you know, this is like, like all my friends find this film incredibly sexy. Like it's a lot, it's like fundamentally this film is, a very very beautiful love story and it is and we should mention a an aggressively bisexual film more so than being a gay film because there are a lot of scenes between uh, men and women as well interestingly and as i was watching it last night with a friend and we were talking about the sort of double standard in hollywood nudity my view has always been i'm not against nudity but i do think there should be you know, look there should be more dicks in movies for every tit there should be a dick do you like game of just Thrones? one ball at a time <laughs> See, i'm not against nudity i'm against it being very gender you know skewed to and, one and, direction and for the sake it feels exploitative well, <laughs> jane campion's theory which i think is the theory i sympathize with the most about nudity because her movies tend to feature a lot of nudity that she views nudity as behavioral mm-hmm. rather than inherently sexual mm-hmm. that people act weirdly and differently and interestingly when they're naked yeah um and that human bodies are fundamentally weird i think it's pretty telling that the only you know explicit quote unquote nudity in this film is by a female character mm-hmm. and that that's really interesting to me because james ivory who is you know directed um a Room with a View, Maurice, like, is quite passionate about equality. So, equality sorry sorry to liberty. interject. Uh, James Ivory was enlisted to direct the film and then uh, yeah, switched he, up he to was, Guadagnino. No, no, right? he was going to co-direct the film okay. with Guadagnino and then it basically fell apart. So he became the sole credited screenwriter, even though he co-wrote it with Guadagnino and mm-hmm. the editor. And the original script had more explicit full frontal male nudity and that was cut out. According to Guadagnino, it was because it was irrelevant to the story, but also Hammer and Chalamet both had clauses in their contracts that meant they couldn't show full frontal nudity. I just think it's quite telling that in a story about, that revolves largely around male queerness, that the only explicit nudity, except for, you know, a few bumps, is of a woman. It kind of reminds me of Brokeback Mountain, that it's it's not a gay film, you know, and Hathaway and Michelle Williams both show tits. Would that have affected <laughs> its rating in uh, American markets differently? Would it have made it like... NC-17, uh, no, I think it, yeah. it's already an R. Again, I'm less uh, uh, upset about the lack of nudity than the double standard. I feel the same yeah. way. I, I don't feel the same way as James Ivory, who is very much very upset there isn't any dick in the movie. <laughs> Have you seen The Power of the Dog yet? Yes. Isn't it great? It's really good. Benedict Cumberbatch's butt. <laughs> the Power of the Dog creates like this, you know, this sort of cocoon, this like 
anti-industrialization and it's like the the film kind of immerses you in this little like this bubble and in the same way call me by your name it immerses you in this very pleasurable bubble where it's all about like first love nostalgia and it is you know it doesn't it's not a nostalgia for the 80s it's a nostalgia for your first kiss and to me it treats the 80s as almost an aesthetic backdrop but without any of the history or any of the historical specificities of the 80s other than a few songs and cool clothes Timothy Chalamet wears so I don't know that's part of not necessarily a problem I have with the film but I feel like it's inserting itself into this tradition of contemporary late 2010s films that are just so horny for the 80s and its aesthetics. And I don't know, I've got my plate full of those personally. Nostalgia happens largely in cycles. I think when people are nostalgic for the 80s, they largely forget about, you know, Reaganism and AIDS. The the bad shit. Exactly, and I think that, call me by your name, you know, it doesn't mention Reagan, it doesn't mention HIV even though they filmed that scene. So Guadagnino setting it in 1983 rather than 1987, interestingly, was a very conscious decision. He wanted to set it in a period where, the way he described it was, the 70s was still happening in Italy. Mm. You hadn't seen the full effects of Reaganism and Thatcherism, and even though all these things were obviously happening, but there was a sense of innocence, and I think that leads to it feeding into that idea of a fairy tale and wish fulfillment, this period that you can be nostalgic for because you hadn't seen the full effects of what really and happened yeah. in the 80s to so many people. Yeah. Uh, there is one scene where they address sort of the political landscape when the two house guests, the two friends of the parents, come over and start bitching about Bettino Craxi, who was, <laughs> who was uh, the Italian prime minister from 83 to 87. The so he might, he might also be in the book. <laughs> say, what do they say? Crack, crack, see, They're crack. just bitching about him for a while. And then he quotes uh, Louis Bunuel. Yes. And it's like, the cinema is an eye. And it's like, it's like, it's this, you know how I said this is a masturbatory I th- film. I think they're in meant- so many ways. I, I think, I this think is also Guadagnino be. basically do, being a bit wanky and being like, I know film. But I think that the, the two of them are meant to be a satire of left wing intellectuals from the 80s. Like, yeah. yeah. A small thing I want to mention before we moved on to uh, Francesco's film is you know, Shia LaBeouf was originally cursed as Oliver. Holy shit. That's a very different movie. Just do it, Timmy. Do it. <laughs> Sleep with me, you motherfucker. <laughs> that would have been but it, a traumatizing it, film. Well, but the interesting thing is he was let go from the movie. He was no longer attached to the movie by the studio because he was too problematic. <laughs> now, considering that he replaced him with Army Hammer, yeah. it's yeah. quite funny in hindsight. We should, we should preface for our listeners who don't know why Arnie Hammer is problematic that he had some pretty intense allegations made about him by three different women. And there seemed to be an element of him coercing women against their will into kink play. Yeah, related to cannibalism. Yeah. And stuff Interestingly, like that. there is a song uh, about Shia LaBeouf on YouTube called Absolute, Absolute Cannibal Shia LaBeouf. Oh my god, we found the missing so link. The link. So, and on that note, we're moving on to our alternative picks of the day. I'm going to start today because my pick really builds into what I was just saying about queer period cinema. And today I'm choosing to present 
André Teixinez 1994 masterpiece Wild Reads. Wild Reads was originally made as a mid-length film as part of this compendium where a lot of different French directors, including Chantal Ackerman and Oliver Assayé, had to make a one-hour-long film about adolescence in the decades between the 60s and the 90s called Apologies to our many French listeners Tous les garçons et les filles de leur âge All the boys and girls of their age Much like Call Me By Your Name, it's a period film in that it was made in the 90s but it's set in 1962 during the very final months of the French-Algerian War and it tells the story of four young adults like teenage slash young adults characters, three boys and a girl. There's Francois, this middle-class, incredibly well-educated, but also smarmy and full of himself. Student, he's our Timothy Chalamet of this film. He's dating Maitier, the daughter of his teacher, who's an activist in the French Communist Party, who are very much against the French-Algerian War and want it to be over. There's Serge, the son of Italian immigrants, a working class boy who works in a farm. And there's Henri, a kid who was born in occupied Algeria and then exiled to France and has now been radicalized in the French far right. He's constantly listening to the radio. He's very supportive of the French invasion in Algeria. Uh, Just... For context, Henri sucks. He does. <laughs> he's, he's terrible. Well, he's the type of guy who wears a suit to school, wakes up at 4am to follow that CEO grind set, invests in crypto, listens to Ben Shapiro. Yeah, he's that type of guy. Okay. So to briefly summarize, why is this a queer film? Well, Francois and Serge develop a relationship where the two of them start exchanging homework, where Francois is good at literature, Serge is good at maths, and as you do when you go to an old boys boarding school, they also start exchanging bodily fluids. <laughs> I don't know if the reason I didn't love this film was down to the version I was watching. It is very difficult to find a good quality version of this film with the correct subtitles. Yeah, so there is a bit of a problem of uh, accessibility with this film. If you would like to watch it, there is a DVD of it, but unfortunately it's only Region 1. So if you're in America, North America, you can watch it with any of your devices. If you're in Europe like us or, you know, in Asia, you may need a Region 3 DVD player. But that's why we're here. We're presenting films that are underrated and underrepresented and they need more wide distribution. And they need to be on streaming. Movie, do your thing. <laughs> uh, Pete, what did you think of this movie? I absolutely love this film okay. i think it's such a great companion piece to call me by a name it's got all the romantic nostalgic elements of call me by your name but then this ever prescient political undertone you know this this as as francesco said the algerian war is kind of raging in the background and then 
I just think it's really unusual. Like the relationship, the menage a trois that kind of happens between the three kids, the girl and the two boys is so weird. Well, the three boys. Yeah. So menage a quatre. Quatre. <laughs> well, but that's part of my interest in this film is that from everything ranging to their sexuality, which they're now just discovering, it's also the 60s. So like the stigma around homosexuality and queerness is even stronger than in Call Me By Your Name. Everything ranging from that to their politics, they engage with it like immature kids. Henri, who's this like far right edgelord, doesn't know anything about politics and he can very easily be swayed into becoming an actual empathetic human being once he starts making friends and he starts making connections exactly and and he he leaves his bubble and he becomes more of a fully formed human being it is so interesting in the film literally how quickly the bubble bursts so that he goes from wanting to not to spoil the film, do this terrible thing and immediately goes from that to making meaningful connections with other people for the first time in his life. And I understand that at a point of great personal tragedy, which to him is the French loss in the war, it does open you up to extreme vulnerability. And I think maybe the movie's commenting on that like it's just it's so gorgeous bad version or no bad version that the scene where he's holding on to him on the back of the motorbike and they're riding along through the woods it's it's just it's so dreamy and i have i have like an image of serge like <laughs> saved on my phone yeah. i i'm not saying i didn't like the film i'm saying that i didn't love it and maybe that was the condition in which i watched it maybe that was the version that i ended up watching i'm just saying for whatever reason, it didn't do it for me in the way that some other films that we're going to talk about did. I find that quite interesting because one of the things that this film doesn't shy away from is the complexity of the political context. And so it makes parts of the film really wooden because they start explaining the conflict or in a classroom setting or like characters start explaining, you know, their political ramifications of, the, of, you of know, a, conf- a certain event. Of a conflict 30 years before the film comes out. Right. And I think that, you know, that's significant, that there is a degree to, even when it's made, it's not a film made in the 60s about what was going on in the 60s. No. It's a film that does sort of have to do some of the heavy lifting because there isn't necessarily the same cultural shorthand, even though in right. France, the Algerian war is far better known than it would be in... In the UK, UK yeah. yes. Although it is much like the Call Me By Your Name book, autobiographical, uh, Francois is a self-insert of André Téchiné, the director. So there's he puts a lot of himself and his memories into that film. I think, to an extent, all four of the movies we're going to talk about today are autobiographical to yeah. some extent. I would agree with that. I do agree that I think this is the most explicitly political of the four, in the sense of mainstream party politics or ideological politics. Yeah, true. It deals with issues of sex, issues of gender, issues of sexuality and issues of race very explicitly, not ascribing a specific ideology to any of that. And, uh, sorry, issues of class, because you also have the class divide between Francois and Serge. It's such a key element for me that it explores this idea that, like, you know, we were talking about James Ivory and... Call Me By Your Name and Maurice before. And there's this, there's almost this idea in a certain wing or arm of queer cinema where it's almost like, well, this is only available to the upper classes. This is only available to the, you know, the privilege. The pri- it's only the privilege you can explore or experiment with their sexuality. And Which... I like the way that this film kind of 
shows you a diversity of of sexualities, of demographics. By which I should mention, I have our producer coming in through my earpiece telling me that actually, in the Call Me By Your Name book, the family is described as being not that wealthy, they inherited their property in Italy, but that is never mentioned in the film. The film is is a very upper class fantasy. So we are treating everything that isn't explicitly mentioned or heavily implied in the film as text rather than subtext. So yeah. for the purposes of the film, we are going to take the the Perlman's wealth as a given based on the coding of the film. It's called Because You Watched Call Me By Your Name, not because you read the book. Yeah, books are for losers. <laughs> <laughs> I think Wild Reads is a really good exploration. Like, because they're all at the same, this, this same school. I mean, even, Ma- the- even Mattia, I mean, she doesn't go to the school, but she is so connected to the school because right. her mum is a teacher there. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, something I particularly love about this film is the image that inspired its very title. It refers to this uh, Jean de la Fontaine poem that is referenced in the film about an oak tree talking to a little wild reed. And the oak tree is very boastful. It's like, oh, I'm so large. I'm so impervious to the elements. You as a little reed can only survive because I'm over here shielding you. And then the reed replies, well, I'm built different. If the wind blows, I bend, but I don't break. Then as it happens, a storm blows, it uproots the tree. So the oak tree is completely flat on the ground and the wild reed, the little wild reed is still standing. And to me that it's almost a standing for how the characters as, you know, coming of age, teenagers are standing against these behemoths like sexuality and politics and the war where they are you know, little dwarves compared to the uh, a storm that is blowing around them, but nevertheless they persevere and, and grow and, 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 and not just the war that features heavily in the film, but, you know, the larger context of the 60s and what was happening. I mean, you have this new stage of the Cold War going on with the Berlin Wall. You have uh, Vietnam around the corner. And I think you can definitely draw a parallel between the French-Algerian waterfront and the Vietnam War to... American films in the way that it's presented that it is just this thing of this is kind of when things changed when the our faith in institutions fundamentally shifted and not necessarily flipped but having faith in institutions became a choice that you had to make rather than a default setting yeah that sounds that sounds fair enough I, yeah. f- I feel yeah. like um, in that school that school becomes a space where they get to confront national identity not just queer identity uh, not not just their sexualities and the pact that they embark on they confront this idea of what it means to to be french and that definition is slightly different depending on which character you know we're looking at because everyone has different politics they have different you know, origins. Very deliberately so. No. You have the working class and the middle class, you have the communist party and the far do you, right. Do you, I was going to say, do you, do you, like, the only thing that I would say that the film maybe suffers from is just being slightly on the nose. As yeah. opposed to Come By Your Name, which is just so <laughs> subtle. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it, it is a bit of its time. You know, it presents the coming of age moment as a necessity in somewhat of a wrong way. So the character of Mathieu, her coming of age is her 
Discovering her sexuality, she goes from being a very sexually indifferent, if not asexual person, to finally embracing her sexuality. And I don't think that this should be a necessity in a film. I, I would have loved for a character to, to just remain completely asexual, not care about boys, not care about dating, just go her own way while everyone when... else was losing their minds over... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I didn't dislike the movie. I think it... I, I I don't know what I don't know what it is. It felt for me a lot like the characters were variations on archetypes without actually having too much variety. A lot of the time, he said because it felt quite wooden, because it, a lot of it felt quite didactic. It prevented me from properly engaging with the characters. I think that what might prevent a lot of viewers from engaging with these characters is that they always speak their mind in a way that to us contemporary audiences might feel on the nose, but to me kind of reminds me of how it was to be 17, where you didn't really have any filter and you were always trying to sound like, you know, you were always speaking very deliberately and you always knew what to say. I would agree with that read if all the characters who talked like that were 17. Well, Harry's 21, but he's Harry's the most immature but, of them but the, all. But the teachers <laughs> also talk like that. Serge's brother talks like that. I think everyone, to an extent, has this very, I, I said the word before, but didactic, point of view. Well, they're French, Charlie. Oh, maybe what do that's you it. No, maybe that's it. Maybe that's a cultural difference that <laughs> I... Is every French movie either deeply political and existential or, you know, just a frivolous sex comedy with Gerard Depardieu? Well, this is both. <laughs> so, to wrap up Wild Reads, if you'd like to watch a gorgeously photographed, very bisexual film set in Central Europe that is not Call Me By Your Name and that is a bit more historically and politically conscious than Call Me By Your Name and class conscious than Call Me By Your Name, then look no further. Buy a Region 1 DVD, buy a Region 3 DVD player, and you can watch it whenever you want. And uh, I think it's a really good film, but you might have to make up your own mind about it. will be late. Haven't you had enough of that white powder? How could you, Irene? How you know how hard you? it was to find these films? It's like one of the few race films that she ever starred in. Really? Uh, do you mind if I smoke? No, go ahead. You know, what's so weird about this setup? What? I don't know, it just feels like, you know, a setup, like, I don't know, you know, all this dinner and... And what? And friendly conversation. <laughs> uh, so next, uh, talk about my pick, which is 1996's The Watermelon Woman, directed by Cheryl Denier. It stars Cheryl Denier as a young black lesbian filmmaker, also called Cheryl, who works a day job in a video store while trying to make a film about a black actress from the 1930s known for playing the stereotypical mammy roles relegated to black actresses during that period. Now the titular watermelon woman is this woman whose name she then learns to be Faye Richards. The watermelon woman comes up because she finds that a lot of black women in early Hollywood cinema and black actors as a whole, not just women, weren't even credited and this woman was credited but as the watermelon woman, not under her real name. So I chose this movie 
in part because if we're talking about a queer love story between two young white Jewish men set in the 80s, I thought, well, what's the opposite of that? <laughs> uh, well, it's a... It's good. It's a like queer love story uh, about black women in the 90s, and the fundamental love story is between a filmmaker and her subject. Because she is drawn to Faye because of her look, because she, her, she has a striking presence. And the way she talks about yeah. being very struck by Faye. She wants to bring her out. Yeah, and, and she, you know, is imitating it. The way she ta- she talks about it is the same way you talk about someone that you are very attracted to. Yeah. Really like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun, but it never sacrifices what it's trying to achieve for the jokes. The jokes come very naturally out of the script and the performances mm. and the situations. And I think a lot of the humor is extremely brutal, mm. um, but it comes from, a re- it feels like it comes from a real place. It really feels like a film where everyone working on it is just having a lot of fun and doing, and working on a project that they want to work on particularly and the fact that this is a what's the budget of the film it's very minimal it's it's yeah it's very i can i can uh find out for you yeah and Uh, the you know it it stars the directors her her herself and her friends it really feels like an organic film a lot of the actors in this movie this is their only film which implies that either they weren't film actors or they just weren't actors and were doing a favor to a friend the budget was three hundred thousand three hundred thousand dollars which for a feature film is very very low incredible yeah and there's the elephant in the room of the film is the fact that well it's this whole documentary style film about an archive research of a person that doesn't exist right. Waterman woman is a construct yeah she doesn't exist and I think that's part of the fun of the movie is she's trying to track down the story of forgotten black women mm. and in order to have one with a recordable inner life she kind of has to make one up it's a, it's like the idea of, of you know queer black women having to almost write their own story, which is... I think that's a really good point. This movie really reminded me a lot of Mark Rappaport's uh, Rock Hudson's Home Movies. Oh, that, okay. I've not seen that. Sim- it's an interesting movie. It's a, it's a documentary. Um, it's very playful. It's and it's only 45 minutes long, if Very short. Sure. So. Essentially, Mark Rappaport picks apart Rock Hudson's clips from Rock Hudson movies. Um, and attempts to sort of, you know, deconstruct his queerness. He's like, how was this, you know, this macho man, this this Hollywood man sort of, you know, ex- existing uh, in front of our, our very eyes? Like, he was the epitomization of masculinity in Hollywood, and, 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 and then all of a sudden it was revealed that he was dying of AIDS, and all of a sudden this, this kind of masculine facade crumbled. It's, it's, it's obviously a very different film, but the principle of, like, this, this kind of task of excavation, the idea of, like, as Francesca, you pointed out, queer black women having to write their own history. Like to me, Faye Richards is a stand-in for every unnamed, uh, marginalized uh, actor. And it almost feels like there's this point that, that the film's trying to make about, about representation. And, it, and like what I like about it is it's dealing with such a painful topic, but it does so so playfully and so humorously. I agree and I disagree. I understand that you're saying about the importance of representation and, you know, Cheryl obviously said at the beginning of the movie, I know I want to make something about black women because our stories are so rarely told, but the idea that it is about anyone that's been knocked around by Hollywood, anyone that's been 
marginalized. I think that does distract from the fact that the decision to make this movie about this, albeit fictional character, with such a specific inner life that she lives in Philadelphia. She is a lesbian. She has a relationship with a white director and she has a 20-year relationship with a black woman in Philadelphia. The decisions that Dunier makes and the parallels between Faye's life and Cheryl, the character's life, are so deliberate that I think it can only be... It's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It is a story about this specific thing. And I think, you might you might disagree, but I, I do just view it as this is what it's about. And I think that it's representation of a specific thing that she saw wasn't being talked about in 1996. And I don't know, the watermelon woman in the films, she doesn't really represent the stereotypical mammy. I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, you know, Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen and I've seen Gone with the Wind, Gone and the that's winds. about yeah, my, that's, that's yeah. about as bad yeah. as it but, gets. But, no, but I think that's the best example. I mean, yeah. if you look at that, the thing that causes Faye to catch Cheryl's eye as a fascinating character is that she doesn't resemble these other people, that she has so much dignity, that she has so much poise, that she has so much grace, and despite the character she's playing she is able to show Cheryl something else that the other reductions of black womanhood don't manage to do. That's kind of that's kind of what I'm getting about okay. by comparing it to Mark Rappaport's. I I, I really Mark want to watch that movie now. Yeah. Movies because it's like the idea is like um, I don't disagree with any of your points. I still think like Faye is this specific like has such a specificity that can't just be made to stand for every black woman yeah. in cinema. And yet what by focusing on this character, the excavation of her history, her her being, it it's it what it does is it it sort of I think for the viewer, we're kind of confronted with the invisibility of blackness in cinema. And it's almost as if, like, yes, Faye is a very specific character, but it makes me think of, you know, all like what watching this film made me think of all the depictions of black people in early in early silent silent film, and of course, you know, like you barely have any black people. Or if in you do, cinema. they're played by a white person. Well, they're, it's it's min minstrelsy, like like across really across the board, and it's you know, but on the rare occasion that you do see a person of color on screen, they are uncredited unnamed and and you know this so this 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 metaphor of the watermelon woman becomes this uncredited unnamed invisible blackness that needs to be excavated that needs to be restored and explored when you look more closely past the stereotypes what you get is the specificity the intricacy of specificity specificity <laughs> specificity the int the intricacy of our of our community our you know our culture our history uh ju just quick disclaimer none of us are black queer women and if you want to hear people who have that lived experience talk about this film in greater depth than i think we're going to today um there are a number of podcasts that do that better than we could ever hope to uh, uh ju just off the top of my head uh there's movies a la queer, Little Gold Men, um, and the Bechtel cast. Check them out because, well, they're great podcasts. On that note, I wanted to talk about 
something that we probably have more of an authority on to comment on The Watermelon Woman, which is its craft as a mockumentary. There are obvious fake interviews where people are playing exaggerated versions of themselves, but there are also some real interviews on the street, which are these very wonderful moments of serendipity where uh, uh, Cheryl is going around interviewing passerbys, asking them about the watermelon woman, which is someone who doesn't exist. Mm. And a lot of people just pretend like they know about her. And they think they talk, she's talking about Rosie Perez, <laughs> oh, wow. which very much, you know, sets Like Jimmy Kimmel on the street, you know, yeah. he's like, have you seen... Uh... I, no, I love that. She calls it a dunyamentary. <laughs> which I really like. The other thing that I want to shout out is the actual clips of Faye Richards movies, mm. which so many films, when they show fictional films made and set in the past, they look like modern films, maybe with a filter on. These genuinely look not only like movies from the 30s, 40s and 50s, but they look specifically like movies from that period that haven't been taken that good care of. Mm. They look like the film stock hasn't been properly treated, hasn't been properly restored. So yeah. it's not just that it looks like they're using the same equipment. It looks like it's undergone the rapid aging that these things were. I just thought that's such a lovely detail. Shout out know, to the cinematographer, uh, Michelle Crenshaw, who is honestly just that work is so good. Interesting. Yeah. They sold some of the images from they made for the film and that's actually how they funded the film but if you if you saw it without knowing that this wasn't a real historical figure you wouldn't know any better no the other thing i just want to talk about and we talked obviously about the representation of black Witch. i, I would you say this is the first one out of the three that does really foreground a specific queer community you have gay characters particularly older gay characters in both films um you have munir in um, Call About Your Name and his partner, who's interestingly played by Andre Ackerman, Ackerman the, yeah. the, who's he's really good. He'd never he's, acted before. He's really he's re good. Uh, and you have, uh, what's the guy's name? I forgot his name. The, the shoe sales. The, old, yeah. shop, the yeah. old shopkeeper. I would yeah. say no, yeah, because the old it, shopkeeper really does represent it, a very powerful moment in the film. Yeah, you know, but he like, shoots him down. He doesn't, uh, this is Wild Reads, by the way. So. In, in, in Wild Reads. And the, the, the thing is, you know, let's not forget, like, we started talking about this at the beginning, like, mainstream cinema's foray into queerness it's always so white it's always about white men but I, th I think that has been in the last few years I mean the last few white. years precisely. yeah the last, the last few I, years I'm I talking mean, about the last you know the last 20 particularly at the time where the watermelon woman was made I mean a there weren't really that many queer films I mean, well, well, I'm interested by what you said because like in the 90s there's this there's this absolute unleashing of queer cinema. You mm -hmm. know, you get like the uh, incredible films like Rock Hudson's home, home Movies, you know, this kind of like excavation of mainstream Hollywood, like, look, the queers, that we exist in the mainstream cinema, we've always been here. Paris is burning. The queer documentary cinema movement, like really finds its feet in the 90s. 90s is, is quite an incredible time for queer cinema. And in, in the meantime, queer representation in, in mainstream Hollywood is actually quite bad. Something else that I think Charlie was getting on is that all the other three films we're presenting are almost like fish out of water stories where you have the central queer yeah. characters who are surrounded by a heteronormative establishment. The Watermelon Woman has so many moments where just randomly there's someone in the background who's you know clearly queer coded and proud of it mm. or some of the interviewees on the street are also queer coded so it's almost like the watermelon woman is inserted 
inside the queer community. Yeah. It's not, An you know, open... someone thrown into this nightmarish French. It's not a film uh, about the closet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a, like both both of the Wild Reads and Call Me by Your Name are they're, they're films about the closet. No one is ever persecuted in either of those movies for be- I mean there is obviously tension and microaggression. Tension. You know, Call Me by Your Name is a film set in very privileged surroundings where the parents almost actively are so for their son, their son's relationship with this man. And Wild Reads like it sets up this framework whereby there's so many problematic things in the film politically. The one like thing in the film that's just not set up in any way problematically at all is the queerness the characters are just it's just it, like, they're oh, very oh, matter of fact okay. about it um, I, you know like Francois is just like oh. you're forgetting about a series of very important scenes where he is admonishing himself in front of the mirror and using a, a homophobic slur but, and then when he has that conversation with the shopkeeper mm. he says I'm like you I'm a deviant or something mm. of that side the, uh, so but, the, the, yeah. the, the difference is though and I don't think what you're saying is at all contradictory to what we're because I think crucially he's saying it to himself it's a self-imposed hatred it's a self-imposed persecution which is you know very traumatic very damaging and very you know difficult to watch yeah but it's not anyone else calling him that it's no one when he makes advances on the boys in the film that he has feelings for he isn't turned away or judged for finding them desirable yeah Uh, I I think that's and I, I think that's a really interesting thing about that film yeah. uh, but quickly you know going back to the watermelon woman you have all these dynamics of friendship between lesbian characters mm-hmm. and lesbian characters who aren't romantically involved with each other which is another thing that I don't know how many films at that time would show for example Tamara and Cheryl in the film are best friends you never get the sense that they are romantically interested in each other yeah because the film sets up a queer community that's not characterized by trauma you know it's not like closeted men kind of interacting with one another in quiet corridors and being like shh it's pr- openly proud black gay women interacting in a community obviously when harry met sally is a big example of this but how many movies coming after this film still made the argument that you know straight men and women couldn't be friends right that you can't have friends of the gender identity that you're attracted to and the sexuality that would make you compatible I, I just think it's a really cool movie and I, I, I do think that at that time it could only come from someone like Cheryl who is a part of that community and understands the dynamics at work and I, you know there are different she portrays different perspectives mm. in that well you have differences in privilege between black women and white women Cheryl has a white girlfriend um, Diana and she's judged by Tamara and Tamara's girlfriend who is also black Maybe at first because she's white, but also because the dynamics of an interracial relationship, particularly a queer one, there are so many microaggressions and so many complicated things that the film makes a point of showing. The fact that Diana does sort of belittle Cheryl a Mm. lot in a way that you don't know if she would if she if Cheryl was a white woman or when they go to visit the film director's sister. And she is, you know, very homophobic and uses uh, racial slurs in front of Cheryl. And Diana doesn't defend her. And I think that is a really powerful scene, capped off by, brilliant cap off by the fact that a black maid enters, which I think is such like a nice detail that Cheryl puts in. Yeah. Uh, the, I know we have to move on. Oh no, uh, and, I'm, enjoy- I'm enjoying this. Oh, you're finally so enjoying yourself. No, no, I am. Uh, I, I feel so like you hit the nail on the head. But like. the other thing I want to mention is just this film's fucking fun. 
Yeah. Oh, it's this a great film's cool. Film. We made it's... it sound like so fucking serious. I fucking love right, this movie. Because we're it's talking funny. about queerness and class there, and there politics. Is... Yeah, but... but there is a fucking scene where a woman goes up after bigging up how she auditioned for Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. She goes up to sing at karaoke, and the scene goes on for so fucking long. And she's bad. And she's so bad. She's so fucking and it, bad. And like, it's not. Yet, yeah, I guess the movie is kind of laughing at her. It's not. It's not. It's, it's so like, fucking funny. It's very knowing. That scene is so fucking good, and the actress is so fucking good, and I couldn't find a name anywhere, and I felt very sad. <laughs> you um, when you were talking before about uh, the specificity of specificity. I keep. On this is a word you're going to struggle with. I can say masturbatory, fine, but yeah, <laughs> specificity. I I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Too many peaches. Oh, good lord. Um, I feel like you nailed something when you were talking about the specificity of The Watermelon Woman. And you reminded me of a really, really great film from the 80s by a filmmaker, a black gay filmmaker called Marlon Riggs, mm-hmm. called Tongues Untied. And this is a film that's so beautiful. And what's, what's so prescient about this film is the way in which Marlon's blackness and his queerness are inseparable. And there's a quote in the film, you know, this idea that, you know, he's like, I'm at once doubly ostracized, doubly rejected, because not only am I rejected from, you know, normative, heteronormative society for being gay, I'm also rejected from inherently white supremacist society for being black. It's intersectionality. intersectionality. Inter- yeah, but, then, but then also fundamentally, yes, this film is very funny. It's good, It's fun to watch in a way that the other two films just well, aren't. More, maybe it's a cool hangout movie. Yeah. It's got good vibes. <laughs> but it's also a film about history as well. It's interesting because it sits so well with other, other 90s films of that period which it's all about like queerness. It's all about an excavation. It's all about like, well, what, it, what do we mean when we talk about queer politics, queer history? You have... Obviously, the film is about excavating a lost, very specific history. But also, you have the fact that it is so clearly set in 1996. Mm. It is so clearly set in a time where you could go to a video store, where you could recommend to a woman to rent a Roman Polanski movie. <laughs> Which, look, it's a fucking good movie. Go, go don't yeah. listen to us. We're fucking stupid. We're fucking idiots. Go, go watch the film. Okay, so that moves us on to the final film. Pete, why don't you fill us in? Fill us in. <laughs> <laughs> in my country, spring is the most beautiful. Just so you're clear, he's here to work. <laughs> I'm on your shoulders now. What do you want? I want it to be different. The way I want to do it. I thought... I'd like to talk about a really beautiful film that came out in 2017. Same year as Call Me By Your Name. Gods Own Country is a film set in Keithley in Yorkshire on a farm. So what's your what's your relationship to the county of Yorkshire? Uh, I know I don't sound it, but I am a Yorkshireman. 
Yeah, well, I'm from Manchester and I don't sound it either. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love this film for for a multitude of reasons. I recognise places in the film. I've been to Keithley. I've, I've walked around the, that sort of farmland. It's very raw, uncompromising, very beautiful. This is a film that is not about a bubble in the same way that Call Me By Your Name's about a bubble. This, this is a film that doesn't shy away from politics. I think even though the characters don't exist in a bubble... It is also the only film that really interrogates isolation. Yes. That interrogates being distant from a world bigger than what you are immediately experiencing. That's a really, that's a really interesting point. There's a reason this film was described as Yorkshire Broke Back Mountain. Yeah. Um, to the annoyance, I think, of the film's director, Francis <laughs> Lee. Because ultimately, you know, the premise of the film is these two guys who are running the farm. There's a young man, played by Josh O'Connor, uh, who people might remember from The Crown. He who played plays Prince Charles. Prince Charles. Oh, God. And he's really good in it. He is really good. But basically, Josh O'Connor plays young, uh, this young man, John Saxby, he lives on this farm in Keithley, in Yorkshire, with his ageing father. Relies, we think he's, he's had a stroke. Right. And he can't run the farm on his own. He relies heavily on John to run the farm for him. And John is incredibly frustrated. You, you, know, you get this sense that he wishes he could be somewhere else. All of a sudden, we're introduced to this young Romanian uh, migrant worker who starts working on the farm. And immediately we're, you know, like the film does not shy away from the kind of racist language. There's there's this uncomfortability that the, you know, the main character in the film is quite racist. And yet these two characters, they they have a curiosity for one another. Like it's very clear from the opening of the film that Josh O'Connor's character, John Saxby's he's gay. You know, he keeps having these fumbles, uh, getting blind drunk, waking up and then just going about his duties. And you get this sense that he's in complete mental distress. One, because he can't talk about his queerness. There's not a space for him to discuss his sexuality in the house that he lives in or with his friends. And he doesn't have the ability to leave the farm. So there's, you're absolutely right, there's this isolation. He's trapped within himself and he's trapped in a location. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to this other character and they hate they hate one another this there's just immediate tension that then somehow in isolation on the farmland ala broke back mountain away from everybody they start to explore their relationship um they start to explore their sexuality there is something so powerful we were talking before about um nudity depictions of sexuality we we're talking about how actually how chaste and prudish call me by your name is you know we didn't say that a guy comes a in a couple of peaks. god's own country is very calm it's very it's raw very there is i have it's never very, it's, it's very sexually aggressive i have never seen a a more visceral depiction of gay sexuality this this film introduces us the idea of farm life anyone who's <laughs> there's this stereotype of like if you grew up in yorkshire you definitely birthed a couple of sheep uh, I myself have not birthed any sheep, but I have friends who have. Yeah. Um, and it's there's there's this film does not shy away from this idea of blood and viscera, and also the connection of the rawness of that with gay sex. It's well, like, and this, you know, it's, it's a fair warning before you watch the film if you're you know an animal lover or if you're in any way shape or form upset by these types of imagery. It is very graphic. But it, but it's never. The characters are never sadistic or malevolent to animals, except for maybe one scene, but in that one, the animal is already dead. And from what I understand, you know, the actors, so Josh O'Connor and Alex O'Connor, who is just as good in this film as Josh O'Connor, just 
even though he's not as well known. I just want to make sure we shout him out because yeah, he's really yeah. good in this movie. No, he's fantastic. They made a point of knowing how to do these things on a farm, and I think that that attention to detail really. Sh- I think that's one of the things that does almost if you connect it to Watermelon Woman, even though they, they seem like very very different films, they are fundamentally improved and elevated by their attention to detail and their specificity. It's very much part of the reality of living and working on a farm. It, the but, film isn't being malicious but about not, it. But not but. just reality, it's banality. Yeah. It, it's the fact that, yeah, the, yeah we, you know, we're in love and we're, you know, very sexually aggressive, but we need to birth this sheep. Is that's like, that's part of my life and what I do. It's this attention to detail that the, the characters' lives exist outside of their queerness. But it's also, to me, as we were kind of getting at earlier, really an attention to the fact that these characters are made of flesh and blood. And everyone in this film is truly made of, of flesh and blood and bones and all the bits in between. And this builds into their sexuality and the film doesn't shy away from it. Mm. But also something else that I like about this film or that I find particularly important about this film is that it stands against historical depictions of male queerness, of men-loving men relationships as sort of mirroring heteronormative gender roles where you have the feminine one and the masculine one. Both characters in this film are dudes. Both of them work the earth. Both of them are hyper-masculine. They're both farmers. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think Francesca is making a really good point that, that, that you know the film doesn't stoop into a kind of stereotype. It's a really great depiction of two men who are presenting a kind of almost, you know, traditional masculinity and when their queerness is revealed, you know, as they sort of engage in this relationship, none of that depiction of masculinity goes away. Mm-hmm. Like they're ten- they're, there's, there's a tenderness between them, but then, like you said, a practicality. One of my favorite parts of the film is when, uh, this sounds really wrong, when his dad gets taken into hospital. No, no, no. Um, not because the dad gets taken to hospital. But the, <laughs> but, no, but it's what, such a turning point in the film. But what follows is this re- highly unusual and brief domesticity between them, where they're basically, they take on the farm together. And it's like this possibility for for Joshua Connor's character, for John, he starts to look at Gheorghe, and he sort of says, well, man, is a life with this person possible? You know, like we're going and we're working the land during the day. We come back and we're watching TV together and we're making meals and he's lighting candles. And the hugging. And it's, go- it's gorgeous. And it's it, and, and like um, Francesco said, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful, and like you mentioned, Charlie, like the, the idea of the, the banality of relationships, the quotidian, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're bored together. There's work and there's rest. In the evening, they're not like there. There seems to be very little drama, which, which is actually the part of the movie that I like least. That eleventh hour conflict, which we won't, you know, spoil. It felt like a conflict they needed to add in at the end to make the character more miserable. Uh, you know, part of um, Josh O'Connor's, part of John Saxby's central issue, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, he's abusing his body, and he's because he ha- he hates. He seems to hate himself. He seems to hate where he is, and he's engaging in these sexual flings with random strangers as a way of reminding himself that he is a, a sexual being. Uh, but these these trysts have no meaning. They have no value beyond him coming. That you know that's their only function, right? And it, and, the, and it, then all of a sudden, all, it's all it's sort of hedonistic, but without any pleasure. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he meets this calm, intelligent... Confident. Yeah, and it's like, Jorge comes into John's life and he calls him out on his bullshit. He, call, you know, he says, he challenges him on his racist 
beliefs. Um, he challenges his, him on his assumptions about Romanians. He challenges him on, on his assumptions about his family, on his life. He reminds him like how lucky he is. But never in a way that feels didactic. I never get the sense that John's view of Romanians or travellers changes. I mean, he uses a slur against um, Romani people to inaccurately yeah. describe Georgie. But he, I don't think there's ever a moment where he is cured, quote unquote, of racism. But I also don't think that's what that conflict is. I think the conflict is him bullying someone. Yeah. I think it comes from a place of cruelty. I think he knows that it's offensive and says it anyway. I don't think, there's no scene where he shows his, this is what I think of. This no. Is what no, I no. think of, yeah. When when he when he first meets Gheorghe, when he picks him up from the station, he's like, you Georgie. Like, yeah, and there's yeah. this, there's this, there's, you know, there's that amazing moment. He gets in the car and he's like, you know, and I, I like I've heard this conversation a thousand times, like you know, just growing up in Yorkshire. This like just this absolute and utter like point blank ignorance. So, hey, oh, so you're Romanian, are you? But, but, but come <laughs> to steal our jobs, are you? But, you know, like uh, the point I'm making is that he's a in those scenes, he's a cruel person. Yeah, weaponizing racist slurs. Yeah. I don't think that the film... I, I could be wrong, and feel free to disagree with me. I don't believe the film ever wants you to think that, oh, this guy's this guy's a racist. I don't know. Weaponizing racial slurs to pick on someone is pretty racist. <laughs> you, you're no, look, you're absolutely right, and maybe I phrased that inaccurately, but the point is, that's not the point of the film. The film is never about his political views. No, because he never expressly grows out of that, or he doesn't have a moment where he's like, oh, all of a sudden I understand the struggles of Romani people, well, like, but he never gets But that. the film's interesting um, because it's, you know, it comes out in 2017. The but, film exists as part of a political discourse on migration, and what's so um, incredible about the film's discussion is the way that it brings queer sexuality to the fore. The, the idea of Gheorghe, a gay immigrant, is beyond the imagination of our sort of cultural uh, definitions of uh, what refugees, what immigrants look like. We're not presented with this idea of a complicated human being with a life story, a legacy and a history. We're presented with these desperate figures who are coming over here to steal jobs and, and rob yeah, benefits. And generalized as a mass. He's a working class immigrant. He's the scapegoat when people complain. He's stealing our jobs. He's driving wages down. I find this film such a beautiful companion piece to Call Me By Your Name. Not because Call Me By Your Name is a bad film. It's like, a great film. It's a beautiful I, I think, film. I, I think it's a really good film. I, right. I, I, I like it. I yeah. haven't seen it 30 times. So I, really love, I really love <laughs> it. I, I, think I, that, yeah. I think that much is evident. What I'm trying to say is that um, God's Own Country is it's, it's this great companion piece to Call Me By Your Name in the way that it addresses some of the blind spots that the film has. So, you know, yes, we're still talking fundamentally about two white men we're still dealing with a certain type of queerness it's not Cheryl Dunier but this is a film that's dealing with class like he's he's a farm boy like he exists in this kind of interestingly Francis Lee who wrote and directed the film where they uh, shot the film was I, I believe the farm either close to where Francis grew up I think Francis grew up in Keithley so I said, we were saying before, you know, there's an extent to which all these films deal with autobiography in some way, which, yeah. is, which is interesting. I don't, I, I can't remember off the top of my head whether this is the farm that Francis Lee grew up on, where the film is shot. It's certainly the area where he grew up. So there's a tenderness with and, and a knowingness and an intricacy with which he shoots these 
this farmland. He's been here for years. Another thing, you know, that I think ties all these films together is that all look, all these characters have problems, but the least of their problems seem to be their queerness. Mm. I mean, really, like it there's tension between John and his father, but he has a friend who he sees in town who tries to set him up. His Gran knows that he's gay. It's not Brokeback Mountain. And I think in God's Own Country, you know, there's a class commentary, but there's the arguably even bigger toxic masculinity commentary 100%. that builds into, you know, uh, John's aggressiveness and his alcoholism and his... Hell yeah. yeah. That's it, isn't it? Because yeah. I, And I feel like so much of what the film is talking about is this... It's talking about masculinity fundamentally. It's like talking about aggressive testosterone fueled masculinity you know, don't, don't fucking touch me growing up in yorkshire and coming to terms with my own queerness the absolute riddled fear that you would that you would have like the idea of like acknowledging your queerness to another person and them to suddenly for them to be like oh you you're, you're one of them oh, oh, you know like and just the this level of aggression that permeates the film where any kind of mention of his sexuality is met with like abject denialism but the way in which he goes about his sexual flings like they're they're mean they're aggressive like you said he has this cruel streak and then he meets this guy who's who challenges who, who him who challenges his cruel streak but the old boy teaches him to be gentle yeah, like, but, to, but, teach not, but not in a way that's like makes him less of a character he's not no. a character that only exists to teach the no no no, no, no the no, problematic character he is you know he's so much more than that yeah I mean um, I was very inspired by watching God's Own Country and also Wild Reads. To me, watching the, the Watermelon Woman for this podcast, you know, queer cinema, like it's, it's ultimately we're talking about something that's so, there's this sense to which like queer cinema has existed since the dawn of cinema. You know, I'm thinking of like Vito Russo's like the celluloid closet, you know, where the, the general premise of the film is, look, we've always been here we have existed in the screen even when you thought you couldn't see us we're there in the silent period we're there in the sound period we are there in technicolor we are but then transparent queer representation in the cinema is relatively new-ish like if we're thinking about in terms of you know when is the first depiction of a gay character on screen like as in like an explicitly gay character i'm thinking of um I think it's a film from the 50s. Um, I think it's called Blackmail. Dirk Bogard, who was a pinup. This is just in the UK context, from my memory. I'm, I'm sure there might be other films. But this is a film about gay men in the UK being blackmailed by, you know, people who have knowledge of their sexuality and saying, well, you're going to pay us this much money each week or we're going to tell your family or you know, we're going to tell your job. And so, you know, these men are killing themselves in droves. And when we think about, you know, queer cinema, you know, we think about it in terms of exploration, in terms of excavation, like in the terms of Watermelon Woman, this is about excavating queer black history. Um, maybe in the terms of, you know, Call Me By Your Name, this is about telling a story that's not so steeped in trauma. Mm-hmm that hopefully young queer kids can watch and feel uplifted because what they're, what they're witnessing is love and nostalgia and it's not painted in, a, in an explicitly heteronormative light. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of Wild Reason, it's a similar thing going on where you know that, that there's, there's a depiction of school kids exploring their identities with these raging politics around, you know, happening all around them. Um, but the film unproblematically starts to delve into and explore their identities. But, but with that in mind, God's Own Country represents a little bit of a digression in that sense because this is a film about 
uh, two characters who they really do have to hide it. I don't view that as also not in the least because it's a small town. Yeah, and he's clearly people clearly know he's gay and he's having affairs left and right with other young men. Maybe what I'm trying to say is that this film, unlike the other two, deals more explicitly with the idea of the the closet. I, I. I, right. I, I well, agree with that. There's definitely tension there, but I think that tension exists because his father senses a difference and anotherness with him, rather than an outright hostility to the idea that his son might be something yeah. like that. Um, Pete, you have been to the town in Italy where they film parts of Come By Your Name. Yes. Bergamo. Bergamo, which Bergamo. was, in, interestingly, in the book was Rome, right. but they couldn't afford to go to Rome. <laughs> People find it very unusual when I tell them, particularly Italians, that like they find it very unusual when I'm like, they're like, oh, where's your favourite place in Italy? And I'm like, Città Alta, Bergamo. I have very beautiful memories of Bergamo. I've seen a picture of you recreating the um, Love My Way. <laughs> the last thing that we like to do to wrap up each episode is vote or debate briefly which of the alternate picks we think is the best double bill or palate cleanser to the centerpiece film they all work so well as in like like i would do a double bill of wild reads first and then call me by your name because because you know you show wild reads and you show this the you know the kind of precursor to this kind of nostalgic kind of dreamy queer cinema yeah. And Wild Reed presents you with a nostalgic, dreamy, queer bubble in which the characters exist and get to, you know, play out their fantasies. Right. Secondly, you know, the point you made about the watermelon woman, it works so perfectly as just, huh, what are we going to do as like, you know, the complete opposite to Call Me By Your Name, which is about two white men. Uh, it, it works so well as like uh, a companion piece because it's everything that Call Me By Your Name is not. And then finally, God's Own Country works so well as a companion piece because it addresses maybe some of the blind spots that Call Me By Your Name has around issues of class and... Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. For me, it's pretty black and white. I think the best companion piece to Call Me By Your Name is God's Own Country, simply because it deals with the blind spot of class and I think that it is a contrast that is so fundamentally direct. Mm. Whereas The Watermelon Woman, it there are so many questions. I mean, there are questions of race in uh, God's Own Country, but it deals with questions of race, deals with mm. questions of misogyny, it deals with questions of... It, it deals with so much in such a short movie that as a comparison to Call Me By Your Name, I think God's Own Country sort of takes one variable, yeah. flips it, yeah. and that's very much how you can view it so I think as a companion piece, not necessarily as my favourite of the three but I think that's the one that works best God's Own Country is the obvious choice it's got the pastoral uh, for, element for, for it's a got, reason for a reason for a very good reason what? Uh, what? I, I just feel like I don't know with all of these three films all these four films pardon I mean I feel like this was such an overreaching episode we learned about it queerness way too ambitious we learned about race we learned about class we learned how to pronounce specificity we've learned oh, so well, much well, well, we, well you and I did did yeah, we? Because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still going to go home and say um, specificity. You know, Wild Reads, I think Pete made the perfect case for it already. I, it's the precursor. Uh, and and uh, once uh, again, you know, pastoral beauty and France and everyone's I, French. I, I, and gay. I, I, stand, I, I stand by my thing is that it lacks the specificity of the other three. It's rooted in so many different perspectives and yeah, backgrounds. Uh, and 
even though that's good for like diversity it's, yeah very broad just... film perhaps we should re- recommend as well as Andre Tejane's Wild Reads uh, Andre Tejane wrote the script for a beautiful film by Celine Sciamma called No The Other Way Around ah oh, Celine Sciamma wrote she the script she wrote the screenplay he directed for a beautiful it. film yeah, being, 17, being 17 it was ultimately to me a toss up between those two which one to present I went with Wild Reads because it was the scavenger find the one that you know is not available for streaming you, and the one that deserves you wanted more to, recognition you wanted to give us a hard time finding it James Ivory who was you know co-directing Call Me By Your Name he made Maurice which I haven't seen but I hear would have been another great pick well, Maurice is perhaps I mean, one of the best queer films I've ever seen so I, I think this episode deserves a sequel not about I, I Call mean, Me I By mean, Your I'll, Name but... I mean if we were to deal with other queer films and maybe from a different perspective and have a different queer film as centipede it's something to definitely talk about i think obviously i mean brokeback mountain is such an obvious choice that i don't almost don't want to do it well fundamentally i would say companion piece to watermelon woman marlon riggs tongues untied and, fantastic uh, film rock hudson's home movies oh hell yeah everybody's pointing <laughs> Where, to my t-shirt oh yeah so just explain your t- explain your t-shirt. your t-shirt I'm, I'm wearing a t-shirt which has screenshot from one car wise happy together which is another gloriously fantastic queer movie francesco and i aren't wearing anything yeah, they have been slowly stripping off during the course of this podcast and are now just about closed just well, we, 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 were stri- we put them back on at the halfway point. Yeah. We started like item by item. So, Pete, where can people follow you and see what you're up to? You can go to my Instagram. It's Pete Restrick. Restrick is spelt R-E-S-T-R-I-C-K. Yeah, my name is like unpronounceable. Follow us on social media. You can find um, <laughs> our links in the description below. We'd like to thank our wonderful producer, Jade Corbett. Until next time, thank you for listening to Because You Watch. Bye-bye. Ooh.